Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Jason. And I'm Eli. And today we're talking about the queer history of video games. Before we get started, we respectfully acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, both past and present, and we acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to the land on which this podcast is recorded. I have some content warnings before we begin this episode. This episode will include mentions of fictional kidnapping and murder, discussions of real and fictional queerphobia, including misgendering and arrest of a trans character over bathroom use, and the use of one homophobic slur, and also discussions of the AIDS epidemic. If any of that is something you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip this episode and check out our other content. If you listened to our previous episode, you would have heard that we said at the end of that that this episode was going to be hosted by Irene, and beyond the lesbians and gays support the minors group. As you might have noticed, this is not that episode. Unfortunately, we're back in lockdown at the moment, so we're not able to see Irene, but as soon as we are, we will be recording that episode and putting it out. In the meantime, you have this episode. So in this episode today, we're going to be talking about three video games that have some place in queer history. We'll be starting off with one of the first queer video games, Caper and the Castro. We'll then be moving on to Nintendo's controversial trans character, Birdo, and ending with what was probably the first online pride parade, which took place in World of Warcraft. That was all wild information. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so intrigued. (laughs) I hope you enjoy it. (laughs) So starting off with Caper and the Castro. In 1989, non-binary San Francisco resident C.M. Ralph, described by one article I read as an artist-slash-computer hacker, designed a game called Caper and the Castro. The game has two taglines. The first is a gay and lesbian-based adventure mystery game, and the second is, it's not just a game, it's a game, G-A-Y-M-E. Amazing. Nice, nice. nice. It's it's nice to know that people haven't changed at all. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely not. (laughs) Making the same puns, like, 30 years later. I think this person needs to add a third title, which is Marketing Extraordinaire. (laughs) I think that's true, yeah. So, Cape and the Castro wasn't the first video game with queer content. As far as I'm aware, that honour goes to the 1986 mystery game Moon Mist, which featured two women in an off-screen relationship, one of whom is already dead when the game begins. It's not great to know that people haven't changed at all. <laughs> yeah. Uh... Yeah. But Caper in the Castro is, as far as I know, the first truly queer video game in that it has a queer main character, queer themes throughout, and it's made by and for queer people. Yeah, I think it deserves that title. Yeah. I don't, think, I don't think Moon Mist deserves that title. Like, that's <laughs> just a dead lesbian off screen. <laughs> yeah. So the game is a point-and-click mystery game. You play as the, quote, famous lesbian private detective, Tracker McDyke. <laughs> I like how that implies, like, a line of McDykes. Of oh, the McDyke clan. <laughs> yeah, the McDyke clan. What is the Dyke Tartan? <laughs> I don't know, but I think we should design it. probably exists, frankly. Probably. Yeah, surely. Probably. Yeah, I've seen gay tartans before. Yeah. Well, there you go. But yeah, like yeah. for the McDyke clan in particular. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if anyone listens to this episode and designs a McDyke clan tartan, please let us know. Bonus points if you get it like officially registered in Scotland first. <laughs> <laughs> Irene would absolutely wear that. Oh yeah, 100%. <laughs> the game starts when you're woken at 3.05am by a frantic phone call from your friend, the drag queen Tessie LaFemme who asks you to meet her, telling you she's got some dirt on the, quote, notorious fiend and villain, Dulligan Straight Man. 
<laughs> these names are all incredible. Mm. Yes, these names are amazing. TM Ralph, like, for commercial reasons, did make, like, a straight version of this game, and they're all called, like, Tracker McDoff and Dolligan Strongman, I think, and it's just much worse. Was it straight in terms of, like, the characters had their genders changed to make the story straight, or just the names were changed to not be, like, so clearly, like... There's no... There's not actually any romance within the game, so they didn't need to change any genders to make the story straight, but they did change, like, the names. It's no longer set in the Castro, which is the gay neighbourhood of San Francisco. There's no, like, queer couples sitting at tables in a restaurant in the background, that kind of thing. So, like, uh, yeah. Okay. yeah, it's completely changed to be just, like, heteronormative. What's it called in the straight version? It's called Murder on Main Street. Wow. Uh, I mean, I guess that is the same name, but, like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. How did that do? I don't know how that did. They said they made, like, a steady income off it, but they didn't get, like, super rich off it. So I guess, like, fine. Okay. Well, that's good. Yeah. 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 To be honest, kind of assumed that, like, all this game really had going for it was that it was gay. Well, I think it was made, like, very early in mm. the time of video games, so it also just had, like, being a video game going for it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, that could have gone, like, any which way. Like, pretty much no matter the quality of the game, because it's so early on. Yeah. Like, is, it, is it in the boom cycle or the bust cycle of video games? Because there were, like, <laughs> six of those. Well, apparently it was in, like, at least a decent cycle. Sam Ralph did say that they did get a bit of a laugh out of the fact that there were all these straight people out there, like, buying this video game and playing it, not knowing it was secretly gay. Mm. So, mm. I like that. I hope there was, like, secret gay stuff somewhere within the game's code, a la that weird cult ending of Dream Daddy that everyone <laughs> found several years ago. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> oh. That was just like a like keyboard shortcut you could press and it suddenly turned gay again. Mm. And this like was the awakening for several random like Midwesterners or whatever. <laughs> my cat walked on my keyboard and suddenly the game was gay and then I was gay. Yes. <laughs> my cat made me gay. <laughs> so back to the plot of the game. Yes. You're on the phone to Tessie LaFemme and she tells you she's got some dirt on Dolligan Straight Man, but the phone call is cut off before she can give you any more information. Oh no. Oh no. And so begins your mission to find out what's happened to Tessie and in the process to uncover a plot by Dolligan and his associates to kill the gay residents of the Castro by poisoning their alcohol with a bacterial virus. Oh Jesus. Oh okay. Yeah, so as you can probably tell this plot is a thinly veiled reference to AIDS. How was that adapted to the straight version was it just that like some guy was poisoning some people yeah for no reason i assume so so the the way it plays out in the game is you have this bar that you go to called the game room g-a-y-m-e and you uncover like some details about the plot in the office of another bar which is just called like the 102 cafe i think something like that so i think in the straight version it would just play out like these are two rival bars and so they're trying to, like, poison the oh, okay. patrons of the rival bar rather than poison the patrons of the gay bar. Right, okay. Yeah, so as I was saying, this plot is a pretty thinly veiled reference to the AIDS epidemic, which was ravaging the queer community in America and around the world at the time. As well as alluding to the disease itself, the game also parodies the callous attitude of the US government towards AIDS patients. If you do drink the poisoned alcohol, for example, the game bluntly tells you, the house wine has been tainted with a deadly, fast-acting bacterial virus. You are about to die and there is no antidote. Sorry. And then you die. CM themselves had had many friends pass away of AIDS-related illness, and part of their motivation for creating and releasing Caper in the Castro was to take some action to help the queer community through this time. As they explain, having recently moved to San Francisco, I was so overcome with gratitude for the community that just embraced us, so I wanted to give something to that community. 
So rather than aiming to make money off the game, Sam released it for free with a request that anyone who downloaded it donate to an AIDS organization of their choice. They coined the term charityware to describe this method of distribution. Aww. Charityware, that's so good. (laughs) It's good. (laughs) Hell yeah. It's very good. I don't know if people, like, have used that word elsewhere. I've never heard that term before, and it's really surprising because I've seen this thing as a concept before. Yeah, like, it's definitely a thing that, like, game designers are still doing now, but they're not using this word, and it sounds like a useful word. I assume you had to pay money for the straight one. Not to keep bringing yeah. it back to the straight one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the straight one was just like a commercial thing that they yeah, made yeah, money yeah. off. Okay. Yeah, and the gay one you could get for free, but they encourage you to donate. Hmm. Yeah, that's how it should be with every video game. <laughs> <laughs> every video game should have a free gay version. Yes. <laughs> so Caper and the Castro was largely distributed through what's called bulletin board systems. I'm not going to pretend to understand what exactly the technology that goes into this is, but these are basically online forums that existed before the internet. So rather than being able to just log onto the internet and Google your forum, you would dial into a specific bulletin board hosted on someone else's computer directly from your own computer. Right. I like how you can't like conceive of the internet without Google. <laughs> <laughs> Or just, like, clearly this isn't, like, a thing where there's, like, a website that is hosted that everyone can just type in the address for. Yeah. So, you had to dial, like, a phone number for the specific server you were connecting to. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've never really looked into the history of what, like, internet bulletin board is. I've heard of this term before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just like, oh, yeah, that's just an early term for forum, right? Yeah, but that's like what It's, like, fundamentally a different piece of technology. Yeah, this is, like, pre- like, there's no World Wide Web at this point. Mm, this is difficult for me because I don't understand what the internet is. Nor so. do I, mm. but it doesn't exist at this point. <laughs> All right. I have we to- apologize to any tech listeners who do understand what the internet is. <laughs> <laughs> I have clear memories of the first time I was introduced to the internet. We had one computer in my primary school, which was on a wheelie trolley to wheel between classrooms. <laughs> so they got several of our classes together with the wheelie trolley computer and they were like, kids, we're going to learn about the internet today. And then you all played Cape from the Castro together. No, no, no. Then we looked up Pikachu. On <laughs> It wasn't Google because I don't think Google existed yet, but whatever the pre-Google one was. Alice, what age were you when this happened? I think I was five. I was in prep. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This, is, this makes like- you sound so old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that old. <laughs> I mean, I know, we're the same age. Yeah. <laughs> uh, were you, was your mind blown by the new accessibility of Pikachu? <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know what I thought at the time, to be honest. I'd like to tell my, like, obligatory early internet story, which is that I clearly remember in, like, grade one or something, when we had some kind of, like, baby research thing to do, where we had to Google, like, stick insect or something. <laughs> um, the teacher was like, and a good research, if you don't want to use the library and you have a computer at home, is a website called Google, and she wrote google.com on the board. And I very very clearly, I remember thinking, I'm not writing that down. I'm never going to need that. <laughs> <laughs> I love your primary school stories because you also have the one where someone told you what gay meant and you were like, is this relevant to me? No, I'm definitely not yeah. gay. <laughs> Look, I was and remain stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so to give you an idea of how the bulletin boards worked, an early ad for Caper and the Castro reads, Caper is a lot of fun and is available free online via modem from Glib, the Gay and Lesbian Information Bureau, followed by the phone number you have to dial to connect your computer to the Gay and Lesbian Information Bureau. A few copies were also distributed physically on floppy disks, but not many. <laughs> heard of those. <laughs> <laughs> that floppy disk, that's a term I haven't heard in a long time. Uh, I, we're going to get, like, emails about... How bulletin boards work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. we are. 
Um, so, like, the internet is still, like, well, not the internet. Yeah. The, the pre-internet is still, like, a thing that you have to kind of, like, learn about in the real world. You're not, like, going online to find out about things, it seems. Yeah. Like, you can't yeah. just, like, go on and find something. You have to go, I'm going to this thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, you can't can, browse. Which is, like, a very different experience than yeah. today. Yeah. Mm. So, because of this method of distribution, it's impossible for us to know how many downloads Caper and the Castro had in the years after it was released. CM Ralph spoke about the game at a symposium of PacBell, which is a Californian telephone company. And following that, Caper and the Castro did begin to garner international attention as well as American attention. So, how many people, like, had computers at this point? I was definitely reading, for example, like, some writing by a guy who was on these bulletin boards, and he was talking about, like, his dad just brought home a modem and was like, kids, you can use this to dial other computers and talk to people. And the kids would just like spend hours on the bulletin board. So it was like computers were accessible enough that there were just kids who were just oh, know, okay, yeah. playing on them in their free time as there are now. It wasn't like a totally specialist thing that ordinary people didn't really have. I feel like with that kind of thing, apparently we were like, kids, just use this internet to talk to strangers <laughs> online. And then went through a phase of absolutely don't do that. And now we're back in, yeah, just just talk to strangers <laughs> online. Yeah, yeah, that is true. So after CM Ralph spoke at this symposium, the game did begin to get international attention. And CM recalls that they were getting phone calls from people in other time zones in the middle of the night, thanking them for making Caper and the Castro. Oh, that's really nice. It I, is. I mean, sounds like quite annoying, but really <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't want it to happen to me, but like to read about it is nice. I mean, I guess they could take the phone off the hook, but on the other hand, then, like, how would Tessula Femme call them in the middle of the night with key information? <laughs> About Dolligan and Straight Man. Yeah. <laughs> uh... So, CM Ralph estimates that the game received about 250,000 downloads in the first five years. But that's really just a guess. Cool. That seems, like, pretty good. Yeah. yeah. So, because the games were largely distributed online... There were very few physical copies of Caper and the Castro, and by the 2010s, it was thought to have been completely lost. I was going to say, I'm surprised that it wasn't lost. Well, the only reason we have it is because in 2017, CM Ralph was moving house <laughs> and just happened to find a floppy disk in a box. Oh my that god. That was Caper and the Castro. Wow. That's so good. Yeah. Yeah. So there were, there were quite a few articles. I don't know why there was interest at this time, but there were quite a few articles I found from 2014 where people were sort of like, this game existed. It sounds amazing. Probably the first queer video game. We know it was like a point and click mystery. That's all we know. Yeah. I and guess that's the like 25 year anniversary. Yeah. Maybe that was the reason. I so guess that makes sense. Like yeah. Yeah. And mm. then in 2017, CM Ralph found a floppy disk. And was and- like, good news, everyone. I found a <laughs> floppy disk. <laughs> Yeah, and so they had to work with archivists because at that point they didn't have anything that could read this floppy disk, but they worked with archivists to read the disk and get the game off it, and Mm. it's now just online and you can go play it. That's super cool. It's very good. (laughs) Um, Yeah, video game history is such a fraught time in terms of, like, you know, platforms developing and, like, retaining the ability to play the games. Yeah. So it's really cool to see any efforts to kind of propagate old games online. Yeah. Especially because, you know, like in this case, obviously, it's like an independent queer creator. So they're not likely to be like, no, you can't upload my game online from 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. But like, obviously, with bigger games, that is the case. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's a real problem because they're like, no, it must protect copyright. And it's like, okay, but you're not going to like, you're not, you're not going to keep 
this game accessible mm. so yeah. that the game just doesn't exist anymore. What's the point on having having copyright on something no one can use? Yeah, it's a huge... I mean, it's a much bigger issue with console games compared to PC games. PC oh, games yeah. being obviously much easier to adapt. This one was originally made for Mac, so it's made on something called Hypercard. I don't know what that is, but so it's not just like a... Like, regular floppy disk mm-hmm. like we would have seen when we were kids yeah it's like yeah a specific i mean specific type yeah i mean once you get back you know to the 80s you yeah. are you are looking at much less standardization yeah in terms yeah of what a computer is yeah that's true yeah <laughs> why did you invite me to this episode <laughs> <laughs> for the noir queer crime solving yeah so that's all i have to say about caper and the castro if you visit our social media in the weeks following this episode, I'll put up a link to where you can play it online, and I encourage you to go and check it out. And I'll also put up a link for some AIDS organizations, and I encourage you to follow CM's wishes, and if you play the game, to mm-hmm. also donate to an organization of your choice. Okay, I'm just saying, Twitch stream, where we play I was Caper about to say, should we pretend that we're Twitch streamers and <laughs> play Caper the Castro? I don't really understand what Twitch is, but like, yes. You stream, you playing games. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Or occasionally doing art. Yeah, like I think we could probably do this on my PC. Okay, great, let's do it. Because it's just you need a PC that's able to handle like video software and a game, but obviously this game wouldn't be like hard to run. Yeah, the graphics will destroy your computer. (laughs) 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 Yeah, all right. Well, we'll do it, and we'll obviously donate some money. Yeah, yeah, to an AIDS charity. Yeah. That sounds great. We should, that right, great. Yeah, we should well, definitely do this. All right. You know, wait for our call, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so I tried to play Caper and the Castro and couldn't finish it. Because hmm. um, like, you're not like a hardcore gamer. Yeah, either. apparently it's like a very hard game. Oh, no, we're going <laughs> to embarrass ourselves in front of the gamers. <laughs> <laughs> the gamers. So there was an article I read that was written a few years after it came out where the person who wrote the article, which was a review of the game, said that they were aware of, and having talked to CM Ralph, aware of only two people who had completed the game. One was the person writing the article who admitted that they cheated and one was a 14-year-old boy who was just like a really hardcore gamer. <laughs> this is... I'm so keen. Oh. I'm so keen to play this game and be terrible at it. I don't That's- know how hard it will be like, given that we've grown up with video games and probably much yourself. more familiar with, like, you know, the tropes of how you solve mysteries in a game and that kind uh, of thing. I don't know, but, 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 but point-and-click adventure yeah. games can be incredibly obtuse. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Like, they're very, like, if you don't find this one thing and apply it to this one other thing, then you will not progress. Like, I know yeah. Yeah. this is, like, n- notoriously a thing with old point-and-click mm-hmm. adventure games. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that Jenny Nicholson Vampire Diaries playthrough. <laughs> uh, that wasn't what I was thinking about. Speaking but yes. of the bread tube, should we HMO guy Donkey Kong stream this and just stay on the stream until we until we finish, finish it? <laughs> yes, let's do it. <laughs> oh no, fear! I did yeah. watch a playthrough, so I'll just have to like wipe my memory of what you meant to do. Okay. Yeah. 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 Maybe we can do, like, the rest of us are playing and, like, we can ask you for a hint. Okay, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> if you get really stuck. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Enough about this excellent idea. Mm-hmm. Time for Birdo. We're in 1988 now. In 19- So we've gone back one year. We've gone back in time. <laughs> so in 1988, Nintendo released Super Mario 2 in the USA. The plot of Super Mario 2 is unimportant to us right now. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to try and give you a plot summary of Super Mario 2. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> that was just the most savage burn on Super Mario 2. I never liked Super Mario 2. 
So, okay. Well, isn't Super Mario 2 the one where, like, it's not really a Mario game? Yeah, yeah. So it was a Japanese game which is called Yume Kojo Doki Doki Panic. So unrelated to Super Mario. They created Super Mario 2 and then decided it would be too difficult for an American audience. So they adapted Doki Doki Panic into a Super Mario game, basically just by chucking some Mario skins on top of a few of the characters. (laughs) And released it as Super Mario 2. So, yeah, it's quite different to Super Mario 1 and the Super Mario that comes after it. <laughs> cool. <laughs> it's just there in the franchise anyway. In Super Mario 2, one of the enemies that Mario fights is Birdo, a pink dinosaur who shoots eggs from her mouth. For the sake of completion, there's also Red Birdo, who shoots eggs and fireballs, and Green Birdo, who shoots only fireballs. <laughs> I see we have a Venn diagram of Birdo here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But Pink Birdo seems to be the main one and the design that's most persistent throughout future games. The original manual published with the game in the USA pictured Birdo wearing a red bow on her head and described her saying, he thinks he is a girl and he spits eggs from his mouth. He'd rather be called Birdetta, positioning Birdo as one of the first ever trans video game characters. Okay. Do we have any explanation as to how this happened? Yeah, what on earth is going on? And should we be calling her Birdetta? (laughs) I guess so. I don't have any explanation as to how this happened. Is this Doki Doki Panic's fault? Yeah, so it is the same in Doki Doki Panic. In the original Japanese game, Birdo is not named Birdo, but Catherine. The description of the character is basically the same, except rather than saying that she is Birdo but would rather be called Birdetta, it says that her name's Catherine and she likes to be called Kathy. So it's just a nickname. Oh, okay. So probably Birdo is fine. (laughs) I don't know. I didn't like, you know. I know this is the most seriously anyone has ever taken this, but, you know. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, I didn't dwell too long on what was the correct thing to call Birdo. You're welcome to use any of the names that have been offered to you here. Up to you. Uh, so, just to be clear, in Doki Doki Panic, is Birdo still like a pink dinosaur? Yeah. Or is that like a Mario design? And is Birdo still trans? Yeah, so Birdo is still a pink dinosaur in Doki Doki Panic, and Birdo is still trans. Like, the English description is basically a pretty close translation of the Japanese, except that the name's changed. Okay. Okay. I'm very sorry that I cannot tell you who designed Catherine in Doki Doki Panic or why they decided to make her a trans dinosaur. (laughs) (laughs) I know that will make this section of the episode very unsatisfying, but that's the situation. So we've mentioned already like another early piece of queer video game content, like apart from Caper and the Castro, Mm. just like incidental queerness in an otherwise not queer game with that like off screen dead lesbian. Yeah. Are you aware of like other examples? Like are you aware of other like random side characters who were trans? There's another one that I know about. I can't think of the name of the game. It's a game that like people would have heard of today as well. Where there's like a woman that you like have to beat up at some point and in the Japanese version of the game it's not mentioned that she's trans and I think the developers intended her to be trans but never made it particularly clear. And then in the American version they made her more explicitly trans and yeah the discussion had by the localizers who changed it for america was apparently that they felt more comfortable having your character beat up a trans woman than a cis woman well all right that okay yep so like i guess we can uh, probably ultimately assume that birdo's a joke about trans women i would say so in a way in doki doki panic and Super Mario 2, it's just that sentence 
in the manual. There's no kind of in-game joke. There's no joke at all, really, especially in the Japanese version where it literally says, like, like I think Birdo Birdetta is kind of inherently humorous because of the name Birdo. But <laughs> <laughs> but Catherine Cathy is but, not. Yeah, Catherine Cathy. Those are just normal names. So I don't know. It is a mystery. And yeah, I'm unsatisfied. And obviously, like, I can't read Japanese. And if you could read Japanese, you'd probably be able to do some more research on this and maybe find some information in Japanese about the developers and why they created Catherine and what they were thinking. If anyone happens to know that, let us know. But I don't know. So, Birdo continued to appear in future Mario games after Super Mario 2 slash Doki Doki Panic. And the decision to make Birdo queer has been quite persistent in Japan, more so than in the USA. So, in the 1995 Japanese quiz series, Satella Q, Birdo is still referred to as a woman, but is depicted with what the Mario Wiki describes as a, quote, buff masculine build. Looking at the credits for BS Super Mario USA another Mario game released exclusively in Japan in 1996, there are three people who voice the three colours of Birdo. Two of them from their pictures in the credits are clearly in drag, pictured in heavy makeup and wearing headdresses and so on. The third is not as obviously in drag from her dress. I'm not clear if she is a drag queen or not from the picture, but all three were described in articles I read about them as what's referred to in Japan as okama. So that's a word that can refer to effeminate gay men, trans women, drag queens, and a variety of queer people. I'm amazed that this became such an enshrined part of the presentation of this character. Especially because a lot of it seems to be like not really an in-game part, Mm. Like things like, oh, we're going to get some queer people to voice Birdo or Catherine because that's a queer character, or we're going to write it in the manual. But in-game, there's not much in-game queerness happening. Yeah, in-game, she's just a pink dinosaur that you fight. How much dialogue does this dinosaur have? Um, In the early games, she has, you know, a few lines. I don't think you have in-depth conversations with Birdo. I think she just, like, says... It's not like a lore-heavy game. No. <laughs> You know, she says some stock lines in her oh, scenes, yeah, okay, I think. Cool. Yeah, yeah. In later games, she doesn't talk at all, and I think most characters just don't talk in later games. Conversely, in the USA, pretty early on, that second sentence of Birdo's description, he'd rather be called Birdetta, disappeared from the Super Mario 2 manual. One article I read says it was excised even before publication, but I have seen pictures of that manual including that sentence, so at least some copies were printed. After the release of Super Mario 2, US versions of Super Mario games generally describe Birdo as a girl, use she her pronouns for her, and have her voiced by cis women. So unlike in Japan, there's no kind of queerness going on with the character after that first game, for a while at least. Some queer fans do prefer to just headcanon this as Birdo being a trans woman and having become fully accepted as a woman in the world of Mario, but it seems more likely to be due to Nintendo's strong censorship in the 90s. Time for the Burr Renaissance. (laughs) (laughs) That's Nintendo of America specifically that you're referring to there, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So that's an American censorship issue rather Mm. than a Japanese or international Mm. one. But, like, those two things aren't necessarily contradictory. Like, I don't think that fans are going to be saying the reason why (laughs) Birdo's presented as this way is because they want to make it clear that trans women are fully accepted. They're just like, this would be a nice explanation. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right. I think that's obviously happened for other reasons. 
Yeah, like, I'm not saying that if you head Canon Birdo as a trans woman who's fully accepted in world that you're wrong. Like, go right ahead. Or that you believe Nintendo are fully accepting <laughs> yeah. trans women in the 90s <laughs> in America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One article I read argued that, quote, It certainly appears that Japanese gamers are more willing to tolerate deviation from the mold of cisgendered video games when talking about the queerness of Birdo in Japan. But it goes on to say this is an inherent fact about Japanese gamers versus Western gamers, but something that's due to there being a lot more inclusion of queer background characters in Japanese video games in contrast to a Western setting in which, quote, censors poured pedantically over every pronoun. And this censorship was strongly spearheaded by Nintendo, who put a lot of effort in the 90s into pitching themselves as a really family-friendly company and who had strict content guidelines which avoided the inclusion of queer content not only in their own games but also in any other games that were made to be used with their consoles. There are other games we know of that had queer content that Nintendo made them take out before they could make them for Nintendo consoles. We do see occasional references to Birdo's queerness coming back into more recent US Mario games. In 2008, Super Smash Bros. Brawl included includes a trophy that states that Birdo is of, quote, indeterminate gender. No, she's a woman and her name is Catherine. Yeah, <laughs> and she <laughs> likes hard. to be called Kathy. Or Birdetta. Or Birdetta. Or Birdo, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Maybe not, unclear. Meanwhile, in Japan, Birdo continues to be quite explicitly queer. In the same year, 2008, Japanese game Captain Rainbow was released, which much more explicitly engages with Birdo's transness. Can I assume from the title that Captain Rainbow is a pretty gay game all round? No, that's just a coincidence. Oh, wow. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely thought that too on the night being about it's like, oh no, it just happens to have a trans plotline. It's not a gay game. That's just its name. A trans plotline? <laughs> Tell me more right now. <laughs> So, in Captain Rainbow, you play as the superhero Captain Rainbow, aka Nick. Who is straight, obviously. <laughs> a straight man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you have any in-game romances in Captain Rainbow. I know there's a point where it mentions that Birdo has a crush on you, but... I don't think you pursue that relationship. <laughs> Is Captain Rainbow like a humanoid? Yeah, man? he's okay, a human just man. Checking <laughs> Does he have a rainbow outfit? Oh, uh, he has an outfit with many colors. I would say it's not like a rainbow outfit. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you play as Captain Rainbow, who completes various tasks for the characters from various Mario games. In a Japanese context, was this game released by Nintendo or...? Yeah, it was a collaboration between Nintendo and a company called Skip. Okay, cool. So in a cutscene in the game, it's revealed that Birdo was spotted coming out of a women's bathroom by a policeman and has been imprisoned for using the wrong bathroom. What the hell? Also, wait, what year did this come out? 2008. Okay. Um, alright. Yeah. Is the rest of the other plot lines, like, very politically topical as well? Not to my knowledge, no. I think they're pretty, like, you know... Video game appropriate content. Yeah, yeah, Alright, so. go on. So, Birdo asks you to go to her home and find, quote, evidence that I'm a woman. You go to Birdo's house... <laughs> You look uh, tense, Eli. Yeah, it's because I'm tense, Alice. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I don't um, know where this is going, but I don't expect it to be good. So you go to Birdo's house, where you enter her bedroom, and you hear a buzzing noise coming from under her pillow. Whatever you find under the pillow is censored, but the text on the screen describes it as, quote, proof that the owner is a woman, and it appears that it's a sex toy. Hey, aren't these games aimed at kids? Am I wrong? Are they aimed at kids? Are these games aimed at kids? <laughs> 
I don't know what to say. I like, don't know if this game is aimed at kids. But, like, aren't they normally? Yes. But this is a spin-off game. Like, this isn't, like, a Is it standard... normal to have, like, adult spin-off games of kids' game franchises with adult content? Like, does this happen for Pokemon? Um, it doesn't happen for Pokemon. I have heard of this kind of thing happening before, though. Okay. Like, to me, that seems insane, but... <laughs> yeah. To be honest, I didn't actually... I was too busy thinking about, like... Like, the trans aspect, and I didn't engage with the, like, why was this... The buzzing dildo in this Mario game? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, no. <laughs> <laughs> Frankly, that seems like an oversight. <laughs> oh. uh, so, yeah, you find the sex toy on the Birdo's pillow. You take it back to the cop, who accepts it as proof that she's a woman and she is released. I looked up some interviews with the designer of Captain Rainbow, and I didn't find anyone asking him questions about this or him kind of explaining his thoughts behind including this plotline at all. I was hoping he would, but okay. it's just kind of there. You have to assume that this was because Nintendo were like, you're not allowed to ask questions about that. Surely. Yeah, maybe? Because, like, I don't understand how you can play this game and not have some questions about that. No. It kind of begs the question of what else is going on in this game, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what's the, like, kind of current status of Birdo in these games? Like, what's the most recent game that has Birdo in it? I'm not sure what the most recent game that has Birdo in it is, but from a Japanese perspective, I do know that as of 2017, the official Japanese website for Mario Kart describes Birdo saying, quote, Catherine appears to be Yoshi's girlfriend, but is actually his boyfriend. Wait, what? So are they saying Catherine, are they saying Birdo is actually a boy? Well, they said that in the very first thing. Well, they're saying Catherine appears to be Yoshi's girlfriend, but is actually his boyfriend. So I think they're just making a poorly worded statement about how Catherine is a you trans think woman. Catherine's a girl, but like she's really a boy. Yeah. I, I, like, it just sounds like a very clumsy explanation of what a trans woman is. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what's happening there. Well, I mean, it's kind of implying that Catherine is a gay man, really. But, but what was that, like, first one that you said, like, the first sort of mention in the manual of Catherine? So the very first mention in the manual was, he thinks he is a girl and he spits eggs from his mouth. He'd rather be called Burdetta. Yeah. You can put the spits eggs part aside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that, like, there's just not a clear separation of those two things in the understanding of the people who are writing this game copy. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's kind of where I, what I was getting yeah. at, really. As for US versions, I understand that Birdo is just pretty universally a cis woman or a woman whose cisness or transness is not addressed. Ever mentioned, yeah. Yeah. Putting aside the hilarity of calling a dinosaur a cis woman, <laughs> <laughs> I... I hope that Birdo and Yoshi are very happy together. I hope so too. It's worth mentioning that Yoshi is usually assumed to be a male dinosaur who lays eggs, so they're in like, you know. Oh, this is a whole T for T story. Two trans dinosaurs. Just it out all together. makes sense yes. now. <laughs> yeah. So that's Birdo. I'm sorry, I feel like that was very unsatisfying because they have so little explanation for explanation. <laughs> <laughs> for why a lot of the decisions around Birdo being a trans character were made. But you know, it's interesting that they were. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to be wrapping up this episode by talking about a more recent piece of queer gaming history, what is, to our knowledge, the first online Pride Parade. World of Warcraft was launched by the company Blizzard in August 2004. Wow. <laughs> Are you going to make that joke like multiple times or is that, that it? Please tell me that's it. <laughs> tell me more. 
<laughs> I like potentially do more I potentially do more about K for the Castro than well, Warcraft for you. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I spent a while pre this episode just googling like kind of like how does World of Warcraft work? <laughs> what do in World of Warcraft? It's a Momopaga. <laughs> it's a Momopaga. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so World of Warcraft is a massively multiplayer online role playing game in Momopaga. <laughs> Correct. Good job, Alice. <laughs> Thank you. Is that the accepted pronunciation of that? Yeah. Okay. Just oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Momopaga is like a real thing that people say. I genuinely don't know if you're having us on right now or not. <laughs> I am not. But, but memporg, eh? <laughs> ah, yes. Porgs. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's in a fantasy setting, and players create a character, often known as a tune, which they use to explore an open world, interact with other players, and complete various quests. So, since there's no one server that can handle the number of players in World of Warcraft, players choose a specific server to play in, each server being a copy of the same world. So, one of World of Warcraft's original servers, active since a few months after the release of the game, was called Proudmoor often referred to as the gay server. Nice. <laughs> Excellent. So from its outset, Proudmoor was set up as a queer server. So many of the early members of Proudmoor migrated across from other Mamorpagas, coming from queer groups or guilds that they'd formed in those games. So guilds in World of Warcraft and other similar games are basically groups which provide a way for players to organize in-game activities like raids or, you know, whatever you do in the game you're playing, and also a social space providing things like guild chats. So most of the people who were early players on the Proudmoor server came from two guilds in a game called City of Heroes. The guilds were called Rough Trade and Spreading Taint. I understand Spreading Taint is an in-game joke. <laughs> okay. That makes sense, because, like, the, like, taint is probably a mechanic in terms of, like, a poison mechanic or something like that. Yeah. And then, like, and then know. it has that's all it means. That's all it means, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No yeah. other meaning. <laughs> so, in Proudmoor, they formed new versions of these guilds along with other queer guilds, such as the Stonewall Champions. Having queer guilds in Proudmoor provided a safe space for queer players in the game where they could chat with other players without being subject to queerphobic comments, which are rife throughout the rest of the game. And so more queer players were drawn to Proudmoor. One player, who was interviewed under the name of their orcish rogue tune, Venfelder, recalls, I wanted to escape the usual homophobic, assaulting gaming vernacular that was common on other servers. I have an extremely thick skin, but all that junk gets tiresome when it's used as a constant form of punctuation. And Venfelder's experience seems to be pretty representative of why queer players began congregating on Proudmoor. In 2005... Proudmoor hosted World of Warcraft's first Pride Parade, organised by the two guilds, Stonewall Champions and Spreading Taint. It's difficult to find any information about that first Pride Parade other than the fact that it existed, but there's a fair few articles describing the 2009 parade, which I assume is relatively similar, so I will tell you what I know about that to give you an idea of what the first parade might have looked like. So, in 2009, players constructed floats, which were entered into a competition for the March's best floats. They then gathered for group photos before setting off on the march. The march began at an outpost called Camp Toraho. The official announcement reads, We start off by putting the camp back in Camp Toraho. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love these WoW players. <laughs> The announcement also offered the advice that, quote, if you start a level one character to participate, you will need to search for Taint and contact a warlock to port you in for the march. Oh, that's amazing. 
The parade has had various starting locations over the years, and I'm not sure where that 2005 parade started, but the destination has generally been the pirate city of Booty Bay. Solid. Yep. (laughs) The 2009 event also featured a nude dueling tournament, a craft fair, a streamed radio station called Rough Trade Radio, so everyone could listen to the same queer music throughout the parade, (laughs) a contest called Azeroth's Next Top Model, (laughs) <laughs> and a special guild created for the day so everyone could be part of the one group chat. Oh, that's nice. Pride Month in World of Warcraft now also features an event called the Running of the Trolls, in which players are encouraged to create a troll character in the colour that makes them happiest oh. and participate in a troll run to raise money for the Trevor Project, which is an American organisation which focuses on suicide prevention in queer youth. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. It is pretty great. Look at all those trolls. Nature is healing. <laughs> <laughs> Having a queer server which openly displays its queerness through activities like Pride March provides a sense of community for queer players, and it also gives all players the sense that they have the power to take on queerphobic behaviour from other players and from Blizzard itself. Venvalder explains how Proudmore has become a space where even non-queer players will stand up to queerphobic behaviour, saying... I've seen people from non-JLBT guilds warn and scold others in chat for making demeaning remarks or for using insensitive or homophobic remarks, explaining that Proudmore is the wrong server to be behaving that way. In 2006, Blizzard threatened to ban lesbian player Sarah Andrews for advertising her queer-friendly guild in a general chat. They claimed it was, quote, not appropriate for the high fantasy setting, and that bringing up topics like queerness, quote, had a tendency to result in communication between players that often breaks down into harassment. What the ever-loving heck are you talking about? Yeah, the, the argument is basically don't be openly gay because then other people will break the terms of service by being homophobic. So if you're yeah. just not gay, we won't have that problem. And it's I, such- guess at it, I guess while you're at it, try not to be like a woman either or like <laughs> a person of colour. Yeah, yeah. yeah Thanks. And obviously that's just so ridiculous because like as you were describing before, like, you know, video game online spaces are absolutely rife with homophobic language that is absolutely breaking the terms of service constantly. Yeah, It just doesn't get reported and doesn't get actioned. Yeah, and something that people noted during this case was that, like, the words homosexual and transsexual were filtered out by Blizzard's profanity filter, but the word fag wasn't. So, in response to Blizzard's threat to ban Sarah, Spreading Taint and Stonewall Champions stepped up to write an open letter to Blizzard condemning the company's actions and pointing out the hypocrisy, which both of you have just mentioned. Blizzard ultimately backed down and apologised to Sarah, and this successful action has further encouraged queer players to stand up to the routine queerphobic abuse found in online gaming. As far as I've been able to gather, the World of Warcraft Pride Parade has continued annually from 2005 until 2020. I haven't found anything online about this year's parade, but if you know anything about it or you're involved in it, please let us know. Yeah, I'd especially love to see some footage. There are videos. There's a video online of the 2021 yeah. and a few other years. I think there's also videos like the very first one. Yeah. Yeah. Like, especially if anyone of our listeners is involved or has been involved in any of these WoW Pride parades. Yeah. We'd love to hear about it. Please get in touch. The note I want to end on, which I thought was nice, was one participant pointed out that the in-game pride parades not only provide a chance for people to show off their pride and stand up to queerphobia in-game, they're also an opportunity for a lot of people who don't have the chance to or can't attend pride parades in person to Mm -hmm. participate in a pride parade when they otherwise wouldn't be able to. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. 
I'm Alice. I'm Jason. And I'm Eli. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can find more of our content on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you listen to us, especially on Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate it if you would rate us and leave us a review because that helps us to reach a wider audience. You can also find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. And you can email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com. And if you want to find links to any of those things I've just mentioned, you can find them all in one place at our website, queerasfact.com. If you want to support this podcast financially, you can become a patron, which will give you the opportunity to receive some free merchandise, vote on the topics of some of our episodes, and get regular updates from our new Queer as Fact newsletter. You can also support us by buying merchandise from our web double store, or just telling your friends how much you love Queer as Fact. We'll be back on the 1st of July. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then. 